Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. No story has grabbed more attention this week than the asylum seekers who have crossed the border illegally into Canada from the U.S. So what is the government doing about it? How will it help provinces and border towns dealing with the influx of refugees? And why won't it point the finger at the policies and positions of the Trump administration? To answer those questions, we're joined by the Parliamentary Secretary to Public Safety, Mark Holland. Conservatives from across the country have gathered in Ottawa for a chance to discuss a new path forward for the party and to hear from leadership candidates. We start our coverage with a special McLean's panel from the floor of the Manning Networking Conference with Bureau Chief John Geddes and Katie O'Malley, who's covering the conference for McLean's. After that, we hear from the founder of the Manning Center, Preston Manning, who discusses how the Conservative Party should treat populist politics in the era of Donald Trump. And we end off our show with the Ottawa Power Rankings. From the Prime Minister to Kevin O'Leary, we shine a light on the politicians who had a great week and who had a rough week. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. This week, the Trudeau government has been put under increasing pressure to take action to deal with the rising number of asylum seekers who have been illegally crossing the border from the U.S. into Canada through ditches and fields. Many of these people have been putting their lives at risk to come to our country, telling reporters at the scene they're doing so because they fear the immigration and deportation stances of the new Trump administration. While the initial travel ban put forward in the U.S. has been shot down by the courts, a new executive order could be coming as soon as next week. The NDP has been calling for the government to end the safe third country agreement with the U.S., while the Conservatives have been calling for more security at our borders. So, what is the government doing? To answer that, I'm joined on the phone by Mark Holland, the Parliamentary Secretary to Public Safety, which is in charge of the RCMP and the Canada Border Services Agency. Thanks for having me, Cormac. All right, let's let's start by building a base on this issue. Um, what exactly happens to asylum seekers after they cross from the U.S. into Canada? So once somebody crosses um, irregularly uh, into Canada, so that means they, do, they don't cross at a, uh, at a port of entry, um, then uh, they would be uh, usually found uh, or they would report themselves to Canadian authorities um, and, uh, and then they're processed. And because they're on Canadian soil, um, then a different process kicks in. So in 1951, we signed a, a convention with respect to refugees. Uh, so when they arrive on our soil, it's a different process that kicks in. Um, we then begin um, processing the application to determine the legitimacy of their asylum request and determine whether or not their person is indeed uh, at risk. And, um, uh, and then a determination is made whether or not uh, they're going to be granted asylum or whether or not they'll be sent back. Are these people jumping the queue when it comes to refugees? No, their, their application is not going to be considered. So if somebody arrives at a port of entry and uh, seeks to claim asylum, or if somebody crosses into Canada, um, there's a process. Um, there are two separate processes in terms of how they're, uh, how they're considered. Uh, but the, uh, the legitimacy of the claim is the driver as to whether or not there's, they're going to be approved. So if somebody does not have a legitimate claim and, and arrives on Canadian soil, 
um, then they're they're not going to be successful. If um, uh, if they do have a legitimate claim, then obviously that's going to have to be um, uh, properly assessed, and uh, and then uh, as any other form of uh, of asylum, uh, be granted. So what what happens to them then? If if they get denied, are they sent back to the United States, or are they sent back to the country they came from before arriving in the United States? Uh, so that depends. It depends on what kind of status they have in the United States. If they have no status in the United States. Um, and it's not determined that there's a risk uh, to them returning to their country of origin, then they would be returned to their country of origin. But, it, you know, it's also important to recognize that the number of individuals who come in this way is uh, is quite small. And most folks are either uh, already here on Canadian soil, uh, uh, maybe they're uh, here as, as visitors or uh, here in um, on a visa, uh, or they claim asylum by... Um, uh, by do, a normal port of entry. So it's relatively small, the number of folks we're talking about. The, the number of levels of asylum seekers are um, are lower than they were, say, in 2008, but we do get an undulation, a fluctuation of those numbers over the years. Uh, certainly, we're not as high, even in our projected numbers, as we were in 2008. Uh, but um, but any of this sort of activity does concern us. Yes, we haven't set any records, but in the last few years, this is a rise from what we've seen. Why not just and the safe third country agreement that we have with the United States so these people can actually approach at an official border crossing and claim asylum uh, as they otherwise would if it weren't for this because, uh, you know, we're hearing critics who say uh, this is sort of forcing them to go through these illegal measures and put their own safety at risk. Well, I mean, a couple of things on that. So first of all, the Safe Third Parties Agreement is um, is certified by the UN. It's also monitored by the United Nations. Um, and, uh, and it is in effect and it is working uh, working well right now. Um, the fact of the matter is that if, uh, if, if, it, if it wasn't, if it gets into a situation where it isn't working properly, uh, then certainly we would revisit it and we certainly would be hearing from the UN. And, uh, but the, the, the reason it's in place is to facilitate the orderly processing of asylum seekers. What we don't want is people uh, applying for asylum in a, in a bunch of different countries um, that are uh, safe countries for them to be in uh, or for them to be denied in one country and then go to another and it create just, uh, frankly, chaos. Um, so it's incredibly important that this be done orderly. That's why the Safe Third Parties Agreement is in place. Um, it's working effectively. We're going to continue to monitor it. But right now, um, it's, 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 there's a lot of speculation of what might happen in the future. We're dealing with the facts and reality on the ground, and the reality on the ground is a safe third-party agreement is is facilitating a safe and orderly processing of asylum seekers. Do you worry that this trickle could turn into a flood as we see the weather warm up, uh, making it easier for people to cross the border illegally? Uh, this hasn't been the case. Um, so, you know, if we look at, at, at other years, um, uh, there has, and we look at how the numbers fluctuate from cold weather to warm weather, and we look at peak years, um, you know, this hasn't been the case. So we're going to keep a very close eye on it, uh, but uh, for the time being, uh, it's working effectively, and we don't see cause for alarm. But, yes, in the past, we haven't seen the weather affect the numbers, but we haven't been in a situation where we have a president in the United States threatening and taking positions on deporting a number of people who are within his borders currently. So the situation is not the same as it was three, four years ago when the weather would warm up. 
Well, it's fair to say the situation is never the same. Um, and so you, you're absolutely right. The situation changes from year to year and season to season. And, um, and, and that's why we have to monitor it and, and take a look where the trends are. But certainly we can look at how this February compared to Februarys in different years uh, and then extrapolate uh, how those trends played out in other years. Uh, I think we also have to, uh, you know, continue to take a look at an evolving policy environment um, and how things are uh, are transpiring to, to ensure um, that uh, that we are uh, having a safe and orderly processing of the folks that we're dealing with. And right now, that's the case. Um, and there's nothing uh, right now that would lead us to believe uh, that, uh, that this situation isn't manageable. Uh, certainly, if we had any indication of that, uh, we would take action accordingly. These refugees or these asylum seekers have told reporters while they cross the border illegally or after they cross the border illegally, they're saying they are leaving the United States because of the position of the U.S. administration on immigration and deportation. Your government has not acknowledged that. Why not? Well, look, there are at any given point in time that people cross um, and uh, are are trying to come to Canada, they come for a whole variety of reasons. And we assess those reasons and we assess whether or not those reasons are legitimate um, uh, reasons to seek asylum. Um, And I can tell you that my office every day is inundated with um, calls and requests uh, from people who have friends or relatives or uh, folks they know abroad who are seeking to come to Canada. And they have all kinds of reasons and they come from all different parts of the world. Um, I think, you know, we look at each situation individually. Um, We look at uh, what the what the what sort of the aggregated numbers are in terms of our ability um, to process them. And then we look at the the policy mechanisms and the uh, the regimes that are in place to process people to ensure that they're effective and they're orderly uh, and that they're providing the protection that's needed. Uh, Canada is seen as an international leader in providing safe harbor um, uh, uh, to those that uh, need it. Um, and, uh, and that's what we're going to continue to do. Uh, but we also have to make sure that our system doesn't get overwhelmed or that we don't uh, throw in a system that's working uh, because, uh, because, you know, of, of, of anecdotal evidence. That's not, um, that's not how I, I think folks would want to see us operate. Has the Canadian government addressed the issue of illegal border crossings from the United States with the Trump administration? Uh, there are there are conversations um, that take place uh, on on a, on a myriad of different issues. Um, I know that. But has uh, has this issue been brought up with the uh, with the Trump administration? Uh, you know, I'm not, personally, I don't know. I, I think that if you talk to Minister Gale, he would be able to talk to you about his uh, conversations with his counterparts. I, I unfortunately wasn't part of those con- uh, conversations, so I couldn't tell you what uh, what they did or didn't talk about, unfortunately. Uh, but but it would be a question that uh, that I'm sure he'd be happy to answer. The government of Manitoba, um, as well as towns that have been affected by the people crossing illegally, say that they need more resources. They need help with shelters. They need help with food, uh, clothing, etc. for when these people uh, do cross the border. Um, the government hasn't committed to sending those resources down. You have committed to shifting resources within the CBSA and RCMP, but nothing in addition to that. Uh, so will your government commit to any additional resources to help these towns and provinces? Yeah, I mean, first first and foremost, uh, you know, we're deeply appreciative of the community's response uh, in Emerson and, and many different communities that have been accepting um, uh, accepting uh, claimants and, uh, and, and acting in such a compassionate way. I think they've done an absolutely remarkable job. Um, you're right. Uh, not only have we shifted resources to help um, the areas that are seeing more volumes, uh, but we have uh, significantly more resources put to bear on these issues than we did when we were seeing peak volumes back in 2008. 
So, uh, but in terms of the, uh, you know, any additional requests, uh, obviously those have been received and are, are, are being reviewed uh, against uh, both the demands that are on the community and, um, and the resources that are available to determine um, uh, what, what could be done. So you're looking at the at the request. When will we get an answer on that? Well, it's not. It, it's it's a matter of uh, of ongoing um, uh, ongoing surveillance, if you will, of the situation. Uh, these are decisions that are made on an ongoing basis when we're taking information from both the CBSA, from the RCMP, uh, from immigration officials, and from the community itself in terms of. Uh, what's happening on the ground and what are the resources uh, needed. And uh, we're collecting that information and responding in real time. Um, and so uh, in terms of uh, the requests uh, beyond uh, the allocation of resources that have already been made, uh, you know, that's being considered on an ongoing basis, and we're watching how that situation evolves. That was Mark Holland, the Parliamentary Secretary to Public Safety, discussing the issue of asylum seekers crossing the border into Canada from the U.S. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, we head to the floor of the Manning Center conference for a special McLean's panel. We hear from Preston Manning himself about populist politics in Canada during the Donald Trump era in the States, and we bring you the Ottawa Power Rankings. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we hear from former politician Preston Manning about the rise in political populism and how the Conservative Party should handle it in the wake of Donald Trump and Brexit. As well, we'll bring you the Ottawa Power Rankings, letting you know who had a good week and who had a bad one in Canadian politics. But first... We're now recording a special edition of the McLean's panel here at the Manning Centre Networking Conference in Ottawa, where Conservatives from across the country have gathered to basically discuss the path forward for the party and Conservatism in general uh, throughout Canada. And I'm joined right now by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes, and we have a special guest, Katie O'Malley, who's working for McLean's at this conference. Thanks very much for being here, guys. And I guess the first question is, what is the path forward for conservatism and the Conservative Party in Canada? John, we'll start with you. Preston Manning opened up uh, the conference by talking a little bit about the idea that conservatives have to not decry and denounce all the time. Like the, the idea was that let other people be decrying and denouncing the sort of rough edges of populism, sort of Trumpier populism, Brexiteer populism. Conservatives should find a way to kind of harness that, contain it, draw on the parts of it that aren't dark and negative and, and, and channel that energy into the party. It's an old theme for Preston Manning who's always seen himself as a guy who knows how to uh, communicate kind of right-wing populism in a way that, that makes sense in, in national politics in Canada. So he's he's basically asking the party and the movement to do that trick again, but in I think a much more charged international climate. Is he wants to keep it positive. Is that is that it rather than negative? Yeah, and I guess what he's saying is he thinks there's enough at the roots of that sort of global right-wing populist uh, wave that's positive and, 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 re- and legitimate that it can be built on. So he talks about people being concerned about elites not really worrying about their prosperity and their kids' prosperity and, and seeing that as the kind of thing that you can tap into uh, without, you know, without necessarily going to the dark side of Trump and Brexit. All right, so Katie, what are your thoughts on this? Where should the Conservative Party be heading, or where will it be heading, and and what about conservatism and its future in our country? Well, I think John is absolutely right when he kind of lays out that Preston Manning has always been 
kind of the Pollyanna optimist amongst the conservative set, more so since he was leader. He really does try to take kind of that, oh, let's not be entirely anti-environmental. Let's, you know, let, let's actually try to bring people in with a with a message of hope and, and, and optimism and uplifting us rather than just the negative. That said, if you do look at the program, there are some, you know, there, there's sort of a, you can't help but notice a, a focus on, for example, uh, Islamic extremism. It's hard to see how that won't immediately be perceived by people who are both attending the conference and who are watching it from outside as, you know, yet another sort of suggestion of what has become a running theme in the leadership race, which is, it's. I think it's really hard to separate the leadership race that's going on right now from the Manning Conference just because of timing and, frankly, because of the people in attendance, and that that's where, totally understandably, the parties is kind of concentrating its energy right now. It's really difficult to come up with a path forward until you know who's going to be the person leading you there. You are kind of, in that sense, uh, almost treading water until you've got that leader in place. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting is that aside from the sort of big button populist, should we call it a populist issue, but the issue of sort of extremism and the conservatives issues dealing with uh, immigration and those, the NICAB, all of those hot buttons of the elections, you've also got, uh, you've got booths, you've got exhibitors for stuff like uh, school choice, more um, sort of independent alternative schools. You've got the, uh, you know, quite a quite a, a, a number about uh, the, Ontario, there's an Ontario anti-sex ed booth. There's some like littler, Littler populist um, causes and interests that haven't gotten quite as much of an attention, but are still, I think, sort of suggest a, a more entrenched uh, social small c conservatism within the conference this year than I've seen in the past. All right, so, do you notice a different feel at all with this year's um, conference as opposed to years past? Yeah, honestly, not that not that different, Cormac. I mean, I've been to a few of these things, and it's always this melange of different types of conservatives, libertarians, big C conservatives, not so many red Tories in the, at the Manning we Conference. We also have many libertarians this year. I just wanted to point that out. Like, there's yeah, fewer than usual. Usually you see them, and there's not as many this year. But one thing about being in this particular conference is these tend to be people who've been in the movement and usually in the party for a long time, and which raises the question, how can these people embrace Kevin O'Leary, who is such an outsider to the movement? and the party. He's really, it's fascinating that arguably the most noteworthy name and the most uh, sort of interesting figure in the, in the conservative leadership race is a guy who most people at this particular conference have to think is kind of a stranger to them, right? So I think one of the big challenges for him at this thing is to convince them, hey, I am a bit of an outsider. You haven't seen me here before. Well, he was here last year, actually, to sort of talk about potentially doing a leadership run. But generally, you haven't seen me around the movement, but I can be not only one of you, but I could lead you. And isn't that also an issue for Kevin O'Leary, where he's getting all these positive polls, but those polls are only about the general public and not about the Conservative Party itself and the Conservative movement, so they don't accurately f- reflect what could happen in this race? Well, there are some that have gone, at least, it, it is very difficult to poll Conservative voting members because there's no master list of them outside of the Conservative headquarters. You can look at Conservative supporters and Conservative donors and kind of uh, narrow it down and, and, I guess, you reduce your margin of error a little. But yeah, it's always going to be a bit of a, a, a bit of a toss-up, and no one really knows how he's. Now, from what I can tell, his strategy really seems to be rather than well, he's not going to turn away existing party members. He'd love for them to vote for them, you know, if if they're willing to come on board. He seems to think that he can attract new members to the party, and that that's going to be where his power base comes from, which becomes even more difficult because. In theory, those kind of newfound conservatives are probably not at this conference, for instance, because they're, you know, in theory, again, if these are people that were never involved in politics until Kevin O'Leary came along and sold them conservative membership, they probably didn't buy a ticket for the Manning conference. So 
I'm not sure. No one has any real idea whether these people actually exist and how many of them there are, if they're, if, if indeed they do exist, and how many of them are going to vote. But because of that, that also opens up a real unknown factor in you can't necessarily assume that based on the reaction he gets, Kevin O'Leary gets from this crowd, that that's going to be reflected in the final polls. I mean, the reality is we have no idea. This is uh, delegated conventions, you know, rest in peace, but at least we had you, you had more of an idea how the races were kind of unfolding. With a by-ballot mail-in with 14 candidates, no one has any idea, really. So, John, aside from O'Leary, because we all want to talk about O'Leary, but there are 13 other candidates running in this. What are their jobs at this conference, not just in the debate, but uh, overall in dealing with the delegates who come out to the Manning Centre conference? I think a lot of them are looking for that second ballot support, which effectively means second choice support in this sort of the preferential ballot they're doing. And there, I think it's interesting, if you look at, for example, the recent Abacus poll, it was interesting to see that Lisa Raitt had the best positive-negative ratio. She's She's got fewer negative viewpoints and more positive viewpoints, even from many people polled, including declared conservative supporters, who aren't picking her first, right? So you start to see these little, I think Katie's right, we don't really know, there's not clear, crystal clear polling in this, but you start to see these little indications of who might have the kind of, well... Maybe not my first choice, but I'll put them second. There's some arguments that Andrew Scheer may have some of that kind of support as well. And if you believe that this this uh, preferential ballot thing really is going to reward someone who has that kind of second ballot support, then I think we might want to look past the frontrunners, O'Leary, Max Bernier, and start to think, well, who comes out of the pack? And we, we've seen that many times where somebody comes up the middle thanks to ranked balloting. Right, but and what's, what's super important to remember is with a ranked ballot, you make all your choices at the beginning. You don't get to see what the first wave of results are like and then make your choice based on that. So in that sense, it's, again, even more unpredictable. That was the McLean's panel recorded on the floor of the Manning Networking Conference with Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and Katie O'Malley, who's covering the conference for McLean's, you can check out their work on McLean's.ca. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, we speak with the founder of the Manning Center, Preston Manning, about how the Conservative Party should handle populist politics like we've seen with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. We also bring you the Ottawa Power Rankings. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we let you know who had a rough week and who's doing just fine with our Ottawa Power Rankings. But first... In the previous segment, we spoke about the Manning Networking Conference. And one of the key themes from this conference has been political populism and how the Trump and Brexit effects may play out here in Canada. Of course, for the Manning Conference, the focus is around the Conservative Party and how it should handle all of this, especially while a leadership contest is underway. There's no better person to speak about it than Preston Manning himself, the founder of the Populist Reform Party, which is now the Conservative Party, and the founder of the Manning Center. He spoke with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief, John Geddes. President Manning, thanks for uh, talking to McLean's on the Hill. I want to ask you some questions about the kinds of things that are going to be discussed at the Manning yeah, Conference yeah. this weekend. But can I start with something not quite that? I've spoken with you a few times over the years and read your writing, and I always enjoy the fact that you don't just talk about populist politics, but you, you kind of talk about the social and historical roots of populism in the West. Yeah, I, I've heard you yeah, talk about yeah. roughnecks and 
cowboys, homesteading farmers, and the whole spirit of that. And I couldn't help thinking, how, how would Preston Manning be responding when he reads about some desperate character who crosses a windswept winter field from Minnesota into Manitoba, loses some fingers on the way, or, or five or six people who show up in Emerson at dawn. There's nothing open in town, and the ladies that I'm told it's Little Jay's Cafe, open the doors early and say, you better come in here and get some hot coffee to these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't there part of you that says, sort of welcome to the Canadian West. You're kind of desperate, striving people, the kind of people we've always absorbed here and, and celebrated. Oh, oh yeah, I, I think I think of all, on all the debate on immigration and all of that, I think the the class of people that should be given the benefit of the doubt regardless of whatever is the refugee, the, the genuine refugee that is just in real desperate straits. And the, the, the tragedy with those people is, is the complications connected. Some of them are in the United States illegally. That's why they're doing it. Some of them are in the United States illegally because of trafficking. They were caught up in trafficking there. Illegal trafficking, yeah. you, know, you can argue to what extent it's their fault, to what extent they didn't know what we were getting into. So it's just a, a tragedy to which I think one responds humanely. That doesn't solve the bigger problem of the larger immigration numbers or what kind of immigrants you should have in. But, but you, you like people who, I've always heard, and I think it's a I assume it's a genuine thing, you like people who are struggling and striving, looking for the new frontier, looking for a place. So your, your basic instinct can't be to say, we're afraid of those people. Let's keep them out. Let's close down the border, right? No, no. I think I think you want to If you're going to give anybody the benefit of the doubt uh, on the compassionate grounds, it ought to be the genuine refugee. Okay. It's, and it's another. It's a different class than the broader number of immigrants. But let me yeah. ask something that that I think yep. comes from that. There are people in the in the conservative party and the conservative movement who are a seem to be afraid of globalization in, in, in two main aspects. Free trade and competition with, with countries all over the world, which just seems to me to go against the grain of conservatism in Canada, but they seem to be afraid of it. And, and immigration and, and global flows of people, which again, it, it seems to go against the history uh, of a lot well, of, especially I, I Western populism. Well, maybe I don't. Would you say that people no, no. don't be afraid of those things? Well, I don't, I don't. I don't pick up a fear of, of uh, globalization, like in particularly in the resource industries. I mean, yeah. they, they, in this country, they, uh, what I find those people afraid of or worried about is is politicians who denigrate the importance of the resource sectors, which are the basis of our. Our, our trading capacity, like that speech by Trudeau and Davos, like just people just shake their heads. You Which know? Speech, sorry, the the one about we're resourceful people, but almost kind of apologizing. We we got these oh, resource industries down in the basement here that dig, you know, chop down trees and dig holes. What a terrible thing! We were only to get to the penthouse where there's the knowledge sector. Like you know how that resonates in Calgary. You know Calgary's got yeah, the yeah. largest computer capacity of any city in North yeah. America except Houston. Really? Why has it got that? Because of the the um, uh, computer require, capacity required for a reservoir analysis, like it's it's connected. It, anyway, so I, I don't think that's a worry. And, and where you f find these worries about immigration, I, I think the way to handle that is to listen to the person that's got it. Why are you concerned about this? And then 
try to move that in the direction of, uh, of some kind as of... As opposed to decrying and as, as just saying, you, you you've said. got no, don't even raise that. You can't raise that here. Don't talk about that. I just think that's the, the, the perverse approach because it... Uh, it's like I used that wildcat. Well, you try to screw you try to screw the valves down on on a wildcat. Well, that the valves are not strong enough to hold it, and you that, that's what tends to create the explosion. You know? So, trying to see the Canadian context for populism and conservatism in general, I guess, yeah. and, and put it in the context of of what's happened to us with Trump, what's happened with Brexit. There's a whole bunch of European elections where kind of right wing populism is a factor coming up. Is it fair to say that Canadian conservative populism has a history that should guard it against the dark and extreme ones of that? Is no, it your I, argument I, I, that if, you guys have a If one takes a negative, I think, like I know, I've said, said this it's to me again. Well, right, no, but negative is always more newsworthy than positive. That's true. I, I would argue that there, there's a positive side to that, and why, why not learn from the positive aspect of? Uh, of Canadian populism, which is the way the way to deal with it. You, you, you take the, the the agrarian populism of the 20s and 30s. It was not. It it had a right wing manifestation and a left wing. The CCF came out. Of yeah, yeah. The CCF came out. The NDP's roots are populist roots. And when they denied that, by by moving east, changing the name, going with the unions instead of the farmers, they lost their capacity to plug into that. But. Uh, uh, I, I'd say we learn the negative lessons from the, the dark side of populism, but uh, what's more important is to learn the, the positive sides. How can that be converted and changed into, because uh, it's an enormous amount of energy. It's like the well, the energy's down there. So, so let's say that we accept your argument that the important thing is not to just decry and denounce people mm -hmm. who have mm -hmm. a, a, a sort of instinct about the world right now that, that manifests itself in populism. Yep. You, you want to try to see what's what's um, I, I, don't, I don't know what word to use. See what, what ultimately could be positive in that, mm -hmm. I guess. Is it not necessary at certain junctures to denounce things, though? Like, if somebody says something that sounds racist or, or bigoted towards Islam, for example, mm -hmm. shouldn't a person like Preston Manning be out saying, wait, what I heard just now from someone at a rebel rally or s somewhere... That is yeah, you not can do that, but if, if, it's, if it's a politician that's doing it, who they're, they're discounting anyway, because part of this phenomena is they don't, I don't care what these politicians think. You're far better to try to bring other pressure to, on that. I mean, the politician right. can say, I don't know if you were in the room there, but somebody asked me in the press conference, and and, and, and I used to do this. And, and we, we had wild meetings. Yeah, remember, we had the first week in our 97 campaign, we had let the people speak. Did you remember that? Like, they were really lovely, because it was like Russian roulette. They, I would get up there and say, rather than us telling you what this election is about, you are going to tell us about what this election is about, right. because the media guys think, why? Well, 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 no, we didn't think it was. And, and, so, and some, there, there would be some good, you know, ordinary people. Yeah, sure. Talk, but there'd be some nutcase, always get up. But, but but the way I used to handle that, particularly the racist statements or, or um, anti-Quebec, you know, because it was uh, separate. Yeah, there was uh, I'd say, oh, you know, obviously our friend here has had some experience that's given them these views, and I, I appreciate you getting up and saying them here, but sh surely what you have just said, it, it does not reflect my 
view of those people or whatever, or, or the group in this. And, and you, you couldn't get half that out before, because the crowd, you see, if it's a genuine crowd, is embarrassed by that too. And, and the crowd starts to clap. Yeah. And, and I would say that pressure on that guy is far better than some political guy saying, you know, be, you're, quiet. You're, be quiet or you're wrong, or get the guys in the back, throw this guy out, he's got no place in this building. Let, let me shift gears here from <laughs> all this stuff to, to economic policy. Okay, yeah. Because that, that's the other part, right, of, yeah. of this whole thing. So the liberals in power right now would say, well, we've done a couple of things that we, we, we cut middle income taxes, the middle income tax bracket. We offered more money to parents uh, in a way that I think is actually kind of draws, I, I think, more on, in some ways, on conservative principles, right? Because it isn't creating a new universal program. It's putting money directly in the hands of parents. Yeah. We've done things for concerned middle-income people that show that we're worried about pocketbook issues for them. How, how, do you dif how do you differentiate a conservative policy toolkit right now from those kind of measures from the current government? Well, uh, I guess there are two things. One is if you go out and poll among those people and say, do you feel better today than before, they'll say no. Right. So whatever this is, you know, you can argue this has helped them. They don't recognize it. In fact, in Ontario and Alberta, the the, uh, the this which is partly this economic side of populism, this resentment of these guys come out with policies that are supposed to make life better for us. They right. prefer, you know, on the macro side, free trade is or deficit cutting is supposed to, and. Uh, but but I, I I'm I'm more insecure than I was be before, uh, so uh, I, I think I think these policies that profess to be helping but in effect don't or at least people don't perceive them to be doing end up fueling this thing not not uh, helping it. I, like I, I would draw more on the uh, on the current Alberta. Uh, government. I mean, they're doing things. They're, they're all the speeches, the throne speech from the throne, are all in this tone of "We're doing this to help you. We're doing this to help you." The, the, the uh, investor confidence in Alberta's energy sector has dropped from being number six or seven in North America to 43. No, no one in their right mind will put money. And and you know, ordinary people understand that that there's a connection between capital investment and their jobs and their income, particularly in the oil patch. Got these drilling rigs, 60 percent of them idle. There's 20 to 25 guys on a rig. You know, it doesn't take a lot of logic to explain to them if no one will invest in the northeast, west Alberta, you can't work. Yeah. And so all this rhetoric about the government, we're doing this and we're doing that to help that, it, 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 I think it almost reinforces this cynicism. These politicians that tell me what they're doing is helping me, I don't feel it, I don't see it, and so I resent it. And, and I, I, I think the federal liberals are... The, 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 the micro tinkering is not uh, causing any kind of upsurge in public confidence in 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 what they're doing. Now, now the challenge, of course, for conservatives is, is how to not get caught in the same you know kind of in the same web. I mean, the, the, the public just discount what political people and parties are saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's hard. <laughs> so how do you break through that? How do you break through that? It's hard. There's a, there's a vicious cycle, I think, of, of yeah. not believing yeah. people who speak from what people view as sort of illegitimate positions of authority. Right? We yeah. see it, of yeah. course, in the way media yeah. reports are regarded now. Uh, politicians, even public institutions that used to be seen as being kind of kind of beyond that yeah, kind there, of there, there may be ways into it. Like this, this, um, this session on one of the 
biggest sessions or most interesting ones I think here is this one on millennials right because they got into the, it's a two, it's a 2,000 sample poll across the country and it's pretty, and they get into who do you trust and, and this mistrust of government politicians that shows up with them but okay who do you trust I trust myself yeah. I trust my family I trust my immediate circle so we're trying to figure out how do you build on that okay we trust let, let's give you more power to do whatever it is you think you can do and, and one of the one of the things that spiked in in the what they like and which can be tied into conservatives is entre, uh, entrepreneurship mm. uh, and and my entrepreneurship and okay what kind of conditions can facilitate your entrepreneurship and we're trying to look at not just economic entrepreneurship but there's social entrepreneurship there's environmental entrepreneurship we're trying to say civic entrepreneurship is you actually getting involved here if you profess to be like like we're trying to branch there's something they like it involves them trusting themselves and their own circle and whatever not so activate that yeah, in, activate in, in that and pull it down yeah. into these other, as distinct from getting up here, I'm the government, I'm a party, here's what I want to do on the economy, the social environment. I don't know if I'm explaining that right. No, no, I guess. And I'm not even, we haven't even figured out exactly how to do that, but that's what that session is. Who do they trust? It's a little bit like on the communications thing. We, we, I have this 20 page when you're doing a speech. One of the things is out of whose mouth is this message most credible? Right. And, and when like, there's a political piece, increasingly it's not yours. Uh, and so you either try and get it into someone else or you quote somebody else. This is not my opinion. I'm just quoting from Jefferson. This is right. Because exactly. <laughs> he's more believable than I am. <laughs> I think we're probably getting close to running out of time. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you one, one more question to, just to sort of br bring things back to the, the international climate. When populism was a word we used around Canadian politics a lot when, when the Reform Party was rising up, you know, when the populism was a sort of seemed like a last alive important factor in Canadian federal politics at least, yeah. it never occurred to me that populism would become attached to a multi-billionaire who, who had well, sort, of, sort of no... <laughs> You know, like, 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 like how, yeah, yeah. How, can you, how do you feel as a guy who I has had name with the notion that, that Donald Trump, and I don't, I'm not asking to, to denounce Donald Trump, but how can that be a vehicle for populism, that particular, you know, a guy who comes basically out of money and yeah, no, Manhattan? I, I, I don't and know what the answer is. Is that your, can you well, recognize well, I, I, kind I, of I think the other thing it compounds that, I think the social media aspect of this has changed. That is it, do they recognize him as a, uh, that he is a multi-billionaire and is an odd, or, or is it the fact that the medium that he's using is one that they're very comfortable with, that the younger people particularly are very comfortable with, very, uh, it reinforces their preconceived notion. Is, is that as big, a, is that the bigger factor there? Yeah. How he communicates uh, rather than who he is. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, almost, uh, well, what was it, McLuhan's thing that the media is the, the, media is the message, not, yeah. not the, which was a very profound statement. You know, the media was the message, not the source. Yeah. Uh, wh wh I never thought of that. <laughs> no, th this, this may actually be a, a, a quite a manifestation of it, that the source becomes unimportant when the medium becomes the dominant thing. If I get it through this medium, it's persuasive with me. I don't care where it came from. That was McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes speaking with Preston Manning, the founder of the Manning Center and the founder of the Reform Party. Coming up after the break, Shannon Proudfoot joins us for the Ottawa Power Rankings. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. Well, it's that part of the show again where we're joined by McLean's Associate Editor Shannon Proudfoot for this week's edition of 
the Ottawa Power Rankings. This is where Shannon lets us know who had a great week in Canadian politics and who had a bad week in Canadian politics. And of course, keeping with the theme of the Manning Center networking conference that's happening right now and the focus on the Conservative Party, there are a couple of Conservatives who made the list this week. So, Shannon, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, let us know who's up and who's down. So on the who had a good week list this week, uh, heading it up, we have Andrew Scheer. He is one of the 14 candidates for leadership of the Conservative Party, of course. And a recent poll shows even though he is currently in fourth place, his support has more than doubled in recent weeks. So ahead of him are Kevin O'Leary, Kelly Leach and Maxime Bernier. But those three appear to be starting to lose ground slowly now while Scheer is sort of leaping ahead. So he's going to need to maintain that momentum, but it's, it's a good time in the race to have that. Second in the having a good week list is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It looks like the kind of carefully choreographed, polite routine when he visited Washington, D.C. last week uh, went off well, and it now looks like President Donald Trump will sort of take his calls on demand, um, even though certainly at their joint press conference at the end of that visit, Donald Trump did not look like he was enjoying himself in the least. But it looks like somehow things went over well because a PMO staffer let it be known this week that the phone call, or pardon me, last week, that the phone call between the Prime Minister and the President was at the request of, of the Canadians. Um, and they talked about, of course, trade, cooperation, things like that. So it, it looks like in trying to sort of tread very carefully and build a decent rapport with um, a very volatile politician, so far Trudeau has had success on that front. Third on the having a good week list, this one's a little more equivocal, uh, is Brian Mulroney, the former prime minister. Now, lots of people found it um, entirely unseemly that last weekend footage surfaced of Brian Mulroney singing uh, When Irish Eyes Are Smiling for Donald Trump, or people perceived it to be for Donald Trump at his Mar-a-Lago resort last weekend. Now, Mulroney has taken pains to say that no, it was a charity event and he was happy to sort of step up to the microphone for that. Um, but it certainly looked a bit like, like he was happy to play the circus bear to entertain Trump. But when you think about it, given Trump's mercurial nature, it's probably a good thing, even if it's a little bit uh, greasy to have someone who's who's who can play that game, who can flatter his ego, who can keep him happy. So Mulroney's performing that role for Canada could be helpful. You never know. All right. So that that's who's having a great week in Canadian politics. Who's having a bad week? So Kevin O'Leary, another of the Conservative leadership candidates, and in fact the front runner, uh, had a not very good week. Uh, it emerged that he is still a paid commentator on U.S. cable news, even though he's using this as a platform blatantly to tout his own candidacy and his partisan messaging, which is just not a good look. Uh, he's been dropped as a paid commentator for Canadian news programs, but he's still trotting himself out on the U.S. airwaves. Um, as well, the recent polls are a really mixed bag for him. On one hand, he has much more name recognition than than his competitors. Um, you know, one of the news stories about the polls sort of said that if anyone besides O'Leary wins, all of Canada will respond with who. So he has a lot more name recognition, but that comes with a downside. He's highly polarizing. So he is the top choice of the the largest proportion of conservative voters polled for to be chosen for leader, but he's also the most disliked. He leads with in terms of people saying, I could never vote for him. So it's kind of a, an interesting position to be in, to be so polarizing. It'll be interesting to see which way it tips. Next on the list, Stefan Dion, who is the newly appointed uh, ambassador to the European Union and to Germany simultaneously. The reason he is not having such a good time is simply because now experienced diplomats are saying it is ridiculous to 
have him with these dual appointments that they are both really hefty, really important jobs. Um, someone said that the ambassadorship to Germany alone is more than a full-time job and that it, it basically makes Canada look a bit Mickey Mouse. It looks bad to have him in these dual appointments. It looks like perhaps Canada doesn't take either of them seriously when in fact those are both very important relationships. And for Dion himself, that is a really tough road to be put into two really hefty jobs that may or may not be doable by one person. And there are even sort of observers questioning whether he's the right guy for the job in general. He, you know, he's well regarded for being so cerebral and impassioned and kind of, you know, unable to be dishonest about anything. But but there are, are experienced diplomats who are sort of saying that's maybe not the personality you need in a diplomatic post. Last, the person that I think it's fair to say had the worst week in Canadian politics is Tony Clement. Um, he had this sort of very bizarre, tense exchange with a CBC radio host um, over the issue of refugees crossing the Canadian border from the US on foot. And Clement just kept reiterating again and again that the law has to be followed, that the law must be enforced. And the interviewer kept saying again and again, okay, but what would that mean? Like they're they're detaining them, they're they're doing what they need to do, and he had no answer. So they just kept going around and around. The interview, actually, if you look at the transcript, is kind of a masterclass in accountability interviewing. And eventually Clement got so flummoxed, he hung up live on air, which is not a great look. Um, and then he continued to kind of advance the same non-argument on Twitter for several days after. So he took uh, a good amount of derision for that, and it just it didn't look good, it, especially given that his his position right now is public safety critic. All right, Shannon, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, you can check out the Ottawa Power Rankings as well on mcleans.ca. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.